And it's only in the last few hundred years that we have engaged in this experiment of seeing what it would be like to engage with nature in an economic way for our own monetary gain. And so this has really created that divide within mm-hmm. us and, and has led, you know, not only to the, to the crisis in which we find ourselves from a, from a climate and environmental standpoint, but also to this inner crisis that we're experiencing from a well-being standpoint. Hello, my loves, and welcome to Threads of the Sun. My name is Yosha, and I am your host. This is a podcast focused on strengthening our intuition, unraveling from our conditioning, and returning to nature's wisdom. Welcome to episode number 11. We are in the double ones, baby, (laughs) angel numbers. And it's very fitting for today's episode, actually, because we really do have such an angel joining us as our guest today. And I am very excited to introduce her in a moment. But quickly before I do that, I just want to wish you all a very happy new year. If you follow the Gregorian calendar, I hope your transition was a beautiful one. I personally had a wonderful time away with some friends. Um, I had two or three weeks off, which was just bloody divine, actually. Um, We went away camping. I took my van out and yeah, went and stayed on um, a friend's farm and just had this like a beautiful kind of melting of days and yeah, just had a great time. And now I'm back and I'm excited to be back. I'm excited to be sharing this episode today. Um, and I'm excited to be bringing you more frequent episodes this year. So today we are joined by an incredible woman, um, who very much aligns with this podcast's philosophy and vision. Her name is Natasha Deganello Gerardi. I hope I pronounced that okay, Natasha. Um, You have such a beautiful and exotic name. I'm very into it. So Natasha is a mother, a nature practice teacher, and a documentary filmmaker. And through her work, she helps nature lovers find deeper calm and clarity without having to move to the forest or become a monk. So she used to lead nature retreats for groups from humanitarian organizations like the United Nations in wellness retreat centers like One World Ayurveda and technology companies like Airbnb and Google. Now she teaches people around the world through her Nature Practice Flow program, which is a beautiful online community of people committed to aligning their well-being with the Earth's. She has co-directed her most recent film, One Word, Sawal Mim, with Michael Palm Preston of the Winnemim Wintu tribe from Mount Shasta. It was a finalist in the Tribeca Film Institute short film program and was selected for over 30 festivals around the world. Originally from Venezuela, her perspective and teachings are also infused with twenty, with over 20 years of study with the Dalai Lama, attending nature retreats with Thich Nhat Hanh, and learning from indigenous wisdom keepers and some of the greatest naturalists of our time, including Jane Goodall. She has also completed training to become a professional nature mindfulness teacher with Mark Coleman of Awake in the Wild and is also a certified moon guide. 
So quite the introduction. (laughs) It was a, yeah, such a joy and a pleasure and such an honor to have her on the show. I mean, that little intro in itself, um, I'm sure you can gather she is amazing. She is very, very amazing. And I resonate with her very much. Um, she's a beautiful, gorgeous, incredible woman. Um, two more things I would like to share before we get stuck into the episode. Um, first thing is I would definitely recommend listening to this episode outside if that is available to you, because being able to hear her speak and just simply look up at the trees in your backyard or just to be immersed in the natural world would be really beneficial to this episode. Um, so I would recommend being as close to nature as possible because we obviously go into what nature practice is about. So it's really nice to have that kind of relationship, um, right in front of you. We also speak about this kind of concept and experience of biological homelessness that so many of us are experiencing from having torn ourselves away from our natural home and environment. We also speak about shifting our relationship with the earth from an economic one to a sacred one. Um, We speak a lot about awakening the senses because our senses are our primary bridge to the present moment and they help us connect us to our intuition. We speak about attuning to nature in a physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual way. Um, We also go into sailing a bit because both Natasha and I have spent a lot of time living on sailboats and living on the water. And so we we speak a lot about that, which is beautiful. Um, And then we go into a little bit more of her kind of life story and yeah, which I find just super fascinating. Um, We go into her introduction to Indigenous wisdom, um, film school, storytelling, um, and she very um, courageously shares um, about a very tragic accident that altered the course of her life, um, but the silver lining that she sort of found in that. Um, We also go into her work with the Dalai Lama, And lastly, we speak about her latest film, Sawal Mem, which I have since watched since recording this episode, and it is absolutely beautiful. Um, It kind of blew me away a little bit, and it's a very, very important piece of um, storytelling that I feel like the whole world (laughs) needs to watch. Um, But I will let you listen and tune into the episode to hear what it's all about. And I will obviously leave links and all of the things to um, Natasha and her work in the show notes below. And lastly, if you have been tuning into this podcast on a regular basis, you will know that with every episode, myself and my podcast guest always share a little offering Um, a guided meditation, a downloadable PDF, or some sort of giveaway in alignment with the guests that I have on um, to my Patreon community as a thank you for your support. And this month, we probably have the biggest, most generous offering we have done for my community thus far. So I would definitely recommend not to miss out on this one. And I will share the details for that in just a second. Um, But if you are unfamiliar with Patreon, I'd just like to take a quick little minute to share a little bit about it. And please consider this little segment where a sponsored ad would normally be, I guess. Um, I have personally decided not to go down that route. Instead, um, I choose to trust in you, my beautiful audience and this community to help fund and produce this podcast through Patreon. So to be honest, 
it's actually something that I struggle bringing up and asking for help with. It's, you know, a fine line to walk between asking for help when you need it and not sounding too needy. It often kind of gives me this inner conflict, but I'm continually learning and I just decided I need to be more real and vulnerable about it. And the truth of the matter is I do need your help and I do need to ask. Otherwise, how will you know? So if any of you out there create your own podcast, you would know that creating a podcast takes an incredible amount of time and energy. And I do create these episodes because it is absolutely one of my passions. I really, really, really pour my heart and soul into them and I do it all out of my own pocket. So I would love to ask you if you do receive you know, some sort of value from the work that I create and share, and you'd like to circulate and reciprocate some of that energy, then I would love to invite you to my Patreon. It is an already existing online community of about a hundred people from around the world so far who together support this work and vision. And you'll also receive exclusive content that I create just for my community. It's where you'll find loads of helpful resources and links, and you also gain access to all of the beautiful offerings, downloads, and giveaways alongside every podcast episode. So it really is a win-win situation. Um, It's only $5 a month. I have just made a new tier. Consider it like buying me a cup of coffee once a month to you know, accompany me in the editing process or whatever it may be. Um, But if it is within your means, I would be super, super grateful. It really helps us artists continue creating in a sustainable way. And you will find the link to my Patreon page in the show notes below. And this brings me back to our offering for this month. Um, Drumroll, please. So Natasha and I are doing a giveaway for two spots for a six-month membership for Natasha's Nature Practice Flow program, which is a pretty big deal. I'm going to repeat that. We're giving away two spots for a six-month membership for Natasha's Nature Practice Flow program. So wherever you are, whatever you do, anyone can join. It is an incredible online program run by Natasha for those wanting to cultivate a deeper connection to their natural environment and their own inner landscape. Um, I have personally just joined the program two weeks ago and it's fucking amazing. Um, you'll go through the program alongside a bunch of other incredibly diverse and gorgeous humans. Um, I'm also in there and I would love to see you in there. So yeah, we're offering this for free to two lucky people within my Patreon community following the release of this episode. So to enter, it's very simple. Just make sure you are a patron of mine before the 8th of February. You simply need to comment on my post on Patreon what you loved most about this episode to be in the draw, and we'll be choosing two people at random on the 8th of February. Of course, I will let you listen to the episode and you can feel into Natasha and her work and if this program is something you have the capacity and the desire for. And just a heads up, you'll also hear Natasha speak about it at the end of the episode. And she does say six weeks, but we have since then changed it to a six-month membership. So you're hearing correctly when we say six-month. It is six months. (laughs) So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this beautiful episode with Natasha Deganello Gerodi. All right, Natasha, hello and welcome to the podcast. Firstly, um, I just want to say I 
love how we connected um, the story of you finding my podcast through my episode I did with Daisy, um, the incredible evolutionary astrologer for those of you who haven't listened to that episode. Um, I think it's episode number eight. And then, yeah, you deciding to to listen to my podcast from the beginning all the way through on your way to the place where you go and collect your spring water and the email that you sent me about it with the picture of, you know, the moon rising that you witnessed on that journey and um, our chat that we had a few weeks ago. I just feel such a soul connection to you and such a resonance with your outlook and your philosophy on life and the work that you do in the world and your life story. There's just so many similarities and synchronicities. So I'm really excited to be speaking with you today and yeah, just thank you so much for joining me. Um, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Oh, <laughs> uh, thank you so much. It's, it's just, you know, it's just so beautiful how life works when we just open up to the gifts. Um, I, I love Daisy and I really enjoyed that episode. And, and then I'm so happy that I got to know you through the rest of your podcast and, and the conversations that we've had. I'm very happy to be in this conversation with you today. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's so nice. I feel like, I don't know, I feel like you're kind of like me in 20 years or something. <laughs> like the work that you're doing and just your philosophy. I'm like, yes, you are where I want to be. So yeah, it's really awesome to have you on. But before we get into sort of your journey and your life story um, that sort of led you to where you are now, you know, I know you used to run run nature retreats, which um, now because of COVID, you're running these um, online nature practice programs online. I thought we could start with you explaining um, to everybody listening sort of what your work entails and specifically what nature practice is. Yes. So my work is about helping nature lovers feel better in a nature-centered way. So find more calm and more clarity and more uh, radiance in their life through engaging in a more intentional and intimate relationship with nature. And while doing this, improving and healing that relationship with nature as well. Mm. So. Basically, what I teach is a practice that has developed in a very personal way over the course of my life experience, um, weaving in a variety of influences. And I teach this from, from my experience, but as a way to remind people of their own experience and connection and lineage with a relationship with the earth. Mm. So that might be, you know, a combination of teachings and storytelling, meditation, journaling, poetry, movement. We're starting to experiment with a little bit of spoken word, 
So it's really a variety of modalities that come together to help, yeah, find greater well-being and heal our relationship with the earth in a nature-centered way. Mm. Yeah, it's so beautiful. So would you say like a lot of the stuff is kind of embodiment practices or obviously spending a lot of time in nature? Like what does your kind of program and approach to work like look and and feel like, like in in more kind of practical terms? So, um, well, yes, as you mentioned, I used to um, offer these retreats in person and it's a very interesting story how we came online. Actually, some of the people who had attended my retreats started asking me um, during the pandemic if I could do nature retreats on Zoom for them. Mm. <laughs> and at first, I was completely surprised. I, I think I might have, you know, asked them if they smoked a lumpia or something. <laughs> I was like, no, I don't think we can do this. These are, <laughs> these are opposite ends of the spectrum, yeah. nature retreat and Zoom, you know. Uh, I, and my initial response was, I think we better wait. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and to their credit, they insisted and I decided to give it a try. And I was just so amazed at what was possible. And so that led me into this program that I teach today. So what it looks like is that um, every day I'll uh, provide um, an audio recording of up to 25 minutes to, to guide uh, people into some sort of practice. So it, it might be that I teach a little bit and then we go into a meditation or I teach a bit, then we go into a, a journaling exercise or we go into a movement practice where there might be some poetry that helps to kind of engage more deeply into the theme that we're looking um, at. And so, you know, yes, we, we start mm-hmm. out, as you referenced, like looking for opportunities to bring more nature into our lives. That, that's, that's pretty fundamental mm-hmm. because for the most part, you know, in the Western world, we have um, really torn ourselves away from nature in a very dramatic way. Mm-hmm. We, you know, for thousands and thousands of years, we used to spend 95% of our time outdoors as human beings. And our entire physiology is still built for that. But today in the United States, for example, the average person is spending 95% of their time indoors. And so... So crazy. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. (laughs) That's a great... Sorry, that's a crazy statistic. (laughs) Yeah, and it comes it comes from Harvard University, and and it's just astonishing. And and the even you know if it can get even crazier is that within that five percent, they are counting the time that it takes you to get out of the car and into the next building. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. So what happens is that the way that I see it we are experiencing a very dramatic sort of biological homelessness Mm -hmm. where we have torn ourselves from our natural home 
And as a result of that, we are suffering greatly from a well-being standpoint. You know, we, we are feeling worse and worse when it comes to our inner calm and clarity and conscious responsiveness, for example. And we also have become very tolerant to activities that are accepted by society that are actually very harmful to the well-being of the earth as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that these are the two consequences of us coming indoors to this extent. So the beginning of what we start doing in this nature practice program is looking for opportunities to take, let's say, an activity per day that you automatically out of habit do indoors, mm-hmm. but you try to do it outdoors. So this might be something as simple as a call. It might be some work that you can do, you know, take your laptop outdoors. It mm-hmm. might be doing some food prep or, or whatever it might be um, outdoors. We've had very creative um, expressions of this in in our program and then from there we we you know that that's kind of a little wedge that we start opening up and then we look for opportunities to deepen our relationship with the nature that's right outside our doors mm-hmm. and we look at things like um you know your own nature practice lineage meaning who are the people who really supported your love of nature and encouraged that and then, and then we start going more in terms of like, what are the lessons that nature is teaching us? How can we receive those? How can we absorb them? How can we get better benefit from that? How can we then respond in reciprocity back to nature so that we can be aligning our well-being to her well-being? Mm. Yeah. hmm yeah, it's so, so incredibly important. Um, I'm reading this book at the moment called The Sacred Balance by David Suzuki. I'm not sure if you've mm-hmm. if you've read it, but there was a chapter in there that really made me, you know, kind of shift or made me deepen my understanding of exactly what you're talking about, you know, this connection to nature and kind of the reasons why we kind of are where we are. And there was like three main parts to it. One of them, you know, in this modern society, the first one was that we we don't have a, you know, coherent kind of worldview. We aren't connected to myth and stories and gods and goddesses in the way that we used to be. So without that kind of, you know, connection to the sacred or connection to the divine, we then fall into this kind of void and emptiness because we feel kind of alone with this kind of disconnection. And then because of that void, the second thing is then we try and fill it with, um, we try and fill that void through consumerism. So through buying material things and we're buying, 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 buying. And then, you know, realizing that, well, I mean, some of us that that doesn't fill the gap. And then the third thing that he talks about in the book is, you know, more and more people living in the cities and and being disconnected from nature 
and, um, you know, we just turn the tap on and water comes out or we, you know, go to the toilet, flush the toilet. It's like, we don't know where our, where our water is coming from. We don't know where our sewage is going to. We don't know where the, where our rubbish is going to. Like we're so disconnected from living in the natural world and living in community. It really kind of, yeah, made me understand that on such a deeper level, you know, really opened my eyes to it and made me realize like how important spending time. And I mean, I always have kind of known this, but you know, how the importance of spending time in nature in a much more holistic kind of way. And, you know, one of the things that I would love to talk to you about is how being in nature can awaken our senses and why that is important. So yeah. yeah. Perhaps you could, yeah. Could you go into, um, yeah, this concept of our senses and awakening our senses and why, why that is important? Mm-hmm. So what happens is that when we spend so much time indoors, as we are currently spending right now, it act, the buildings in which we are act as a sort of cast around our senses numbing our senses, creating atrophy in our senses in the very same way that a cast kind of atrophies our muscles, right? When we have to put an arm or a leg in a cast. Why? Because when you're indoors, you don't really need your eyesight that much, right? Only to look at your screen or Mm. to look at the person who's talking to you. Mm. So it's a very limited use of your eyesight. You don't really need to engage your hearing very much either because, you know, you just have to listen to what's in your earbuds. Uh, There was an acoustic scientist, his name is escaping me right now, but he refers to our persistent use of earbuds as this learned deafness, kind of this collective learned deafness that we're experiencing. Or we just have to listen to the person who's talking to us. Again, very limited, like an atrophied use of our sense of hearing. Mm-hmm. When we're indoors, um, we don't, we don't want to be too cold. We don't want to be too warm. Basically, w- what's considered to be just right is not feeling anything on your skin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you don't really want to be smelling anything. And so, you know... Basically, we're, we're not using our senses. The problem with this, with not using our senses, is that our senses are our primary bridge to the present moment, to our life as it is unfolding. Mm. And the, the less we use our senses, the more our mind wanders into the worrisome future or to the painful past. And, you know, this creates turbulence in the mind. It's like a mental spaghetti that we're very good at, you know, going into the future with, you know, imagining scenarios or over planning or being concerned about certain outcomes or being over attached to certain outcomes. Mm -hmm. Or we go into the past, reliving our pain and our disappointment and our losses. And the fact that our senses are so numb gives us less and less opportunity to be fully in the present. So what happens when you go outside is that nature is actually waiting for us to bring us right into the present moment 
by engaging with us in myriad ways through our senses. And all we have to do is really, you know, it sounds a little silly and it feels a little ridiculous, but Mm. because we are so numb, we actually have to wake our senses up like and ask ourselves literally what am i hearing what mm. am i feeling on my skin and and start to really ask yourself what am i hearing what am i hearing and you'll start to notice the soundscape the like amazingly beautiful soundscape that nature is offering you you know it might be bird song it might be insects it might be breeze it might be ocean waves and then the same thing with what am i feeling And as you start to wake up your senses in this way, you start to allow nature to bring you fully into into your life, basically, which otherwise you're simply missing in, in your mind. And so, yeah, and and it's a completely different experience to go out and do this with nature because what happens often in meditation, right, is that you find a quiet space indoors with minimal distractions and then you sit on your cushion and you decide, okay, I'm ready to meditate. And as soon as you start kind of focusing on your breath, <laughs> then that's exactly the moment that your mind decides to have a party. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, right? <laughs> And so many of the participants of my program, yeah, have expressed this. So at, whereas when you go outside, there's technically, you know, in quotes, more distractions. But because these, uh, these distractions, in quotes, are actually our home, are at a deeper level, are actually ourselves, then really what happens is that it becomes much more easy to engage your senses and it's also much more pleasurable. And so what happens is that because of that, it makes it much more likely that you are going to look forward to doing it again tomorrow and then tomorrow and then tomorrow, which is very important. So it doesn't feel like a grind or something that you have to discipline yourself to be Mm -hmm. doing something that's very difficult. It becomes a little bit like, you know, like going out and, and getting to know someone again that you have a sense that you really like and then just discovering more and more and more. And this is where that love gets woken up. It's, it's literally this deep love like like you would feel in a romantic situation. Mm, it's that kind of heartwarming. And, and this, you know, to me, is what you were talking about when it comes to world, right? You say we don't have a coherent worldview. Mm. We do have a coherent worldview. We, you know, for our entire existence as human beings, we have seen our relationship with nature as a sacred relationship. You know, like, So much love that it transcends like what could be even romantic and it becomes sacred. Mm -hmm. That has been our relationship with nature. And it's only in the last few hundred years that we have engaged in this experiment of seeing what it would be like to engage with nature in an economic way, 
for our own monetary gain. And so this has really created that divide within mm-hmm. us and, and has led, you know, not only to the, to the crisis in which we find ourselves from a, from a climate and environmental standpoint, but also to this inner crisis that we're experiencing from a well-being standpoint. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well put, <laughs> well said. <laughs> just as you were speaking, I've just been looking outside my window here and looking out at the trees in my garden and yeah, just getting, I've just been getting shivers when you've been talking and just like looking, I'm just watching the leaves like blowing in the wind and you're just talking about this like love that nature has for us. And we've sort of forgotten that love for nature, or we've forgotten that there is a relationship and a connection there. And, you know, I I really feel that, hey, it's that, I love what you said about it's kind of reconnecting this like friendship or relationship that you, or or building on this kind of friendship where it's like every day you want to go out because it's, you're going to get to know a little bit more about this friend. And it's (laughs) building this really beautiful, loving, sacred, relationship um so yeah Yeah. I love that that's exactly right it's like going outside and just getting to know your tree a little bit more noticing paying close attention as if you were to have to describe to him what you see and you know even even if you don't know the scientific name of the tree like maybe you can give the tree your own nickname like you would give to a friend Start mm. describing it, noticing the details, like the different behaviors and, and the energy of the tree. And, and by attuning deeply in this way, then what naturally arises is appreciation, right? Like this love that you're talking about. First, what tends to happen is that you start to engage your love towards the tree but then what that turns into is you actually realizing all of the love that the tree is expressing back to you. That takes the relationship to a whole new level. Mm-hmm. And then from there, nothing but alignment is possible. That's when you become so fiercely committed to that alignment with that tree that it would be impossible for you to be tolerant of anything that would damage the tree Mm -hmm. yeah so that relationship is really at the root of you know of of everything else that happens Mm -hmm. yeah and the the lessons and the I guess yeah, the experience that comes comes from, I guess, the experiential <laughs> um, part of that rather than something that you can just intellectualize, you know. It really has to be this embodied experiential kind of space. And, you know, it makes me, it makes me kind of think about, you know, this, this life that we all tend to lead, um, which is all about comfort. How can we be the most comfortable? How can we, like you say, kind of not feel anything? How can we make the temperature in the room perfect? How can we decrease the noise? How can we numb ourselves out? How can we not feel? And it's the opposite of what we should be doing. (laughs) We should, yeah, should be going out there and getting uncomfortable, being alive in nature. And, you know, like you say, it's kind of part of our physiology, you know, it's like this level of, 
it makes me think of this level of kind of alertness yeah. um, because yeah, I, I think we've kind of, you know, this comfort comes from this like sense of safety and security, which I totally understand. We want to feel safe and we want to feel secure, but it also numbs us out. Um, so mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? But I, yeah. Yeah, it is. And I mean, you know, there are definitely very uncomfortable experiences to be had in nature, right? I mean, there are mm. the wild storms, there are the wild fires, there is the earthquakes, the volcanic eruptions. I mean, there are like very uncomfortable situations in nature. However, my experience is that actually most of the time, you know, I would say in my case, 90% or maybe more of my experiences in nature are actually quite deeply pleasant experiences. So it's almost, it's almost kind of like a bit of a, it's a little bit like a lazy habit or an addictive sort of habit. Mm. The, the habit of being indoors, I think technology has a lot to do with it, you know, mm-hmm. just being like tied to the screen, addicted to the screen, and then just kind of, yeah, not even realizing what's yeah. happening from being indoors all the time. Mm-hmm. And then also like what you were saying about this embodied experience. Yeah. So when we go outside and we're listening deeply and paying attention deeply to what's happening, at first it's from a census standpoint, but really what we're, we're attuning in a physical way, also in an emotional way. It can also be in an intellectual way. You know, while we are outside, we can be learning from nature in an intellectual way as well. And then we can be having a spiritual experience as well. So being outside gives us an opportunity to be connecting and developing our relationship in these different ways as well. Mm. Yeah, I loved um, when we had a chat a couple of weeks ago, I loved how you described you know, you were talking about sailing because yeah, you shared that you'd spent a bunch of your kind of childhood sailing. And I spent many years living on the ocean and I loved the way that you kind of described, you know, how that experience of being, you know, obviously on the water and being out on the boat and that kind of connection to nature. And it's all of those kind of, you shared like the subtleties, you know, Mm -hmm. like the the ripples along the water or Mm -hmm. the slight the slight change in the sale or, you know, these mm-hmm. small subtleties. And it really brought me back into it. And I was like, <laughs> you know what? Yeah, it was such a different way to live. And you're totally exposed to the, yeah, just the, the brutal elements of nature. Um, mm-hmm. But it was so, it made me feel so alive. And, you know, <laughs> like you say, probably those little things of noticing the little ripples on the water or something like that. It, like I, when I, when you shared that with me, I was like, oh, I didn't really think about that at the time, but, Mm -hmm. you know, reflecting on it, like my body was in tune with that for sure. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, when you're outside all the time, like living on the ocean, you don't really have to even think about that because it's your lived experience. I'm just pointing it out from the point of view of like 
us having gone into such an opposite extreme. Yeah. So in that case, then we have to point it out and almost like reteach ourselves. I know, to, right? Yeah. <laughs> to be, you know, to just be paying attention in that way. And and mm. when you're when you're on a boat and especially feeling, you know, so vulnerable on this tiny little vessel in the middle of a gigantic ocean, there is there is this natural weaving of being very attuned to what's happening, of having a deep respect mm. for for the way nature works and for the, you know, for like there's this automatic reciprocity that goes into play. Mm. And you're constantly feeling into, you know, like a sort of consent, kind of requesting consent getting the signs from nature, whether it's safe for you to, yeah. to proceed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you're, you're without even thinking about it, you're, you're living in this deep relationship. Yeah. With, mm -hmm. with nature. And also like, for example, like the showers, right? That water, fresh water is so precious when you're on the ocean. So you're very careful of the use of every drop. Yeah. And I remember, you know, growing up, we had this pump with our foot, we would pump and then that would, that would release like one little swoosh of water at yeah. a time. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the showers that we take by, by just opening it up and letting the water flow, it just yeah, there's a part of that that just feels disrespectful, you know, wasteful yeah. and yeah. Definitely. I really, really, really <laughs> resonate. I learned so much, not only about myself as an individual, but yeah, about all these things that you're kind of speaking about, about being in this relationship with nature and just a appreciating the small things in life. Like I learned so much through my experience of living on boats and sailing and yeah, exactly. Like you say, like little things like brushing your teeth and not leaving the tap running while you're brushing your teeth. Like <laughs> water is so precious. Um, having a hot shower was like, you know, once a month, like specialty. Um, yeah. Like just food, fresh food. If you, you know, like one last apple and you're still got like four days at sea and you have to, you know, cut it and divide it between six people and you all savor this last bit of fresh fruit. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's so beautiful. So Yeah, and then like all the moments of magic. Sorry, yeah. I interrupted you. No, that's okay. Go ahead. Well, I'm just thinking like, you know, the way the dolphin pots come and like dance perfectly with the, with, with the boat, you know, and, and there's just this moment of magic that happens. They're clearly playing, wanting to engage these wild beautiful beings and then in the caribbean we had uh, plankton and if we would travel at night on a new moon or you know before the moon would come up then the when the dolphins would come they would light up the plankton so you would yes. have these Right. I know the ones you're talking about. So <laughs> oh magical. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so like with this, you know, coming back to what you were talking about, you know, this, the divine worldview, like when you are engaging with nature in that way, 
like we don't have words anymore to talk about that magical experience. We have to take it to the divine. Yeah. And so then that becomes kind of a natural way of expressing ourselves. We don't have any more words for water. We, we have to refer to it as sacred water. And so in that way, you know, then, then our, our relationship with the natural world becomes a divine relationship. Mm. Oh, you're making me miss the ocean so much. <laughs> I want to get back on the water. <laughs> Maybe we should get a boat, Natasha, and go sailing. Yes. Make I a agree. film about it. <laughs> Make a film, host a, host a retreat on the ocean. I oh like it. Oh, my God. Let's do it. Yes. Anybody listening came to come along? Oh, my God. It'd be so good. Um, but speaking of speaking of sailing, I'd like to, yeah, kind of go into, I know you've got a very interesting life story kind of behind you and perhaps we could use sailing as a bit of a starting point because um, I know you used to sail when when you were younger as a child. So maybe we could start from there and could you just take us on a bit of a journey of your life from, you know, kind of where you grew up and, you know, spending time in Indigenous communities and, you know, going to film school and kind of just these pivotal points in your life that have kind of led you to where you are. Because I think it's a a really interesting story. And I think, yeah, we'll give a lot of context to the work that you do. Yeah. So I grew up in Venezuela and um, I grew up in Caracas, which is, uh, you know, pretty big city very urban environment but from uh, the front of our apartment we could see the avila which is gorgeous mountain that joins the city to the caribbean and then from the back of our apartment which is where my bedroom was when i would lay on my pillow i i could see little patches of rainforest that the city hadn't taken over and when we would go downstairs Sometimes the, there would be slots in the parking lot and my mom, you know, very gracefully would pick them up from behind and put them back onto the trees. Oh my God, that's so funny. <laughs> and sometimes when we would go downstairs, you know, the, like the caretaker of the building would be telling my father that he had uh, found I don't know how you say it in English. I think it's a boa, a, a boa snake, very gigantic snake okay. in the backyard. So it's this combination of very urban city, but I was very aware of, of the nature in it. Mm-hmm. And my parents were very adventurous. So any opportunity they had, they, uh, my father had grown up in Africa, I think having a lot of experiences in the wilderness as well. And so that was just part of his life always. And so he would, I remember him coming home with tanks of gasoline and then we would go off into off-road for days and days and days deep into, you know, natural worlds. And my parents um, always made it a point to, to take us to visit indigenous people who still lived on their ancestral lands. And those trips had a very important impact and influence in my life. 
you know, one of the things I was very aware of in the city was the river that ran through Caracas. And if you meet every, anybody from Caracas, they will tell you that that river, the Guaire, is one of the filthiest things that you can ever imagine. And there was always like this sadness and embarrassment for me about, about that, like an incoherence about why, how that could be the case. And we would arrive, you know, on these adventures that my parents would take us to, we would ar arrive to these places and my father would say to us children, you know, get out of the car and go fill up the thermoses with the water from the river. Go fill up your thermoses with the water from the river. Those words for mm -hmm. me, I was like, what? <laughs> Where are we? It was like arriving in some sort of island of sanity. Like what I, what I was <laughs> recognizing mm -hmm. is that I was coming into a community where people treated the river like a relative, where people were in deep relationship with this river. Mm. That was my introduction to indigenous wisdom. And it's something that, you know, I have continued to uh, learn about and be interested in and be in relationship with, you know, through the rest of my life until today. And yeah, so, and then, you know, my father, as I grew older, he, um, not that old, I can't remember how old I was, maybe like six or seven. My father got a sailboat, it was a tiny little sailboat, like, I don't know, 26 feet maybe, and a whole family of five people in that <laughs> tiny little boat. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, like, we would have Semana Santa, which is like spring break. So for an entire week, we would be on this tiny little island, all five of us by ourselves. And yeah, so it was this combination. So, so I always felt like this strong relationship with wilderness and with nature and then also kind of living the contrast of that in an urban environment and, and like noticing that and yes um i left venezuela because i um, wanted to go to film school and i was always very interested in storytelling there was something about the power of story i felt like mm. I felt like I was seeing things that other people were not seeing, or I was seeing things differently than other people were seeing them. And I recognized the power of story in helping people see what I saw. <laughs> you know, Sylvia mm. Earle, who's this, you know, like they, they, um, uh, you know, she's one of the world's greatest oceanographers. <laughs> she mm. said, Something like, you know, if you could see what I see, then I would not seem like a radical at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. That really resonated with me. And I, and I realized that through stories and, and especially through visual storytelling, I could help people, yeah, see what I was seeing and also seeing kind of the, the possibilities of, of what I was seeing and walking them through that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. at, but you know when I studied it's funny I don't really feel that old at all but when I went to film school 
we used white gloves and razor blades to edit our films. <laughs> I mean, what? it's just unbelievable. Yes. So it was actual film that we would put, you know, down and then with the white gloves so we wouldn't get our fingerprints on the film and an actual razor blade. <laughs> we would wow. be literally cutting, you know, that's... yeah. And, uh, and it was extremely expensive and, you know, very tedious and time consuming to do this. And so I had a very brief opportunity to work in environmental documentary filmmaking very early on, right after film school in Venezuela. And I thought, I thought that was the work that I was going to do the rest of my life. Mm. But, but the funding were, ran out for that. and. For about 10 years, you know, there, there were no opportunities that came into my life for filmmaking. And so I focused on other, other ways of storytelling and other ways of communicating humanitarian visions and environmental visions until, you know, the time came, which was only about, I think it was only about maybe 12 years ago or something like that, that, you know, that technology made it possible for us to create cinematic quality work in an affordable way. Mm. And, and, and that gave me the opportunity to come back into filmmaking as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And, and most recently, can um, I just, Oh yes. N- Natasha, I'd love to um, hear the story of when you went to Tibet, would you like, can you share that story mm-hmm. and of the, the bus accident and where that kind of led you and, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I was actually working on a graduate program and I got a fellowship. It was like a dream fellowship um, to go spend three months in Nepal um, doing photographic work. So doing visual storytelling for children's organizations to help their audience see the possibilities that they saw when it came to improving children's lives in Nepal. So traveled around the country with my very good friend, Beatriz de la Mora, and we spent three months working on that project. And then towards the end, we were, and, and I'm quite tall, and Beatriz is even taller than me, and in Nepal, the space, the leg room for the space is like if for the leg room on the buses is like worse than a US airline. <laughs> it's like super tight. And mm-hmm. so our long legs just didn't fit. So for the whole three months, we traveled on the roofs of the buses, like on top of the luggage. Mm-hmm. Until one day, the bus driver didn't let us do this, and we were quite unhappy about this. And so we had to sit in the bus for like 16 hours. And at about four or five in the morning, it was drizzling. And I actually didn't even have a seat. I, I was sitting on a bag of rice that somebody had given me because there were no more seats on the bus. Mm. And um, I think maybe the bus driver might have dozed off because he was very tired and it was just raining just a little bit and the bus ended up rolling off a cliff. Uh, In this very terrible accident, which like I lived, 
you know, there's these moments in time where like time just stretches and Mm. I, I experienced the each turning of the bus. There were three, it rolled three times, completely complete turns. And wow. they were like in slow motion. And since I was sitting on the ground and since it was so dark, I couldn't really, I didn't have an understanding of the landscape or how, how far there was to keep rolling. But we ended up in a swamp and... I was um, the only person on the bus that survived without any major injuries or without dying, actually. There were mm-hmm. several people who lost their lives in that accident. And um, yeah, I mean, it was a very kind of pivotal moment. And in, when, as it happened, I got this like energy inside of me to try to calm everybody down in that full bus and started carrying people up the mountain. And I flagged down this truck driver who stopped in the middle of the night and came and helped me carry everybody up the mountain and then take them to hospitals and so forth. And after everything had settled, then my body said, okay, that's enough for you. And I've never had this experience before in my life, but my body just like went into like, you know, stay in bed mode. I couldn't mm. even get up. Mm. And we were staying in this uh, Tibetan guest house in Kathmandu and, um, and the Tibetan people were so nice. They would come in and massage my legs, which had these big bruises on them. And they would bring me my food and, and Beatrice's mm. food. And, after a few days of that, I, uh, even though I started, my mind was ready to get back up, and, but my body was like, no, not yet. <laughs> and so there was this moment of like a little bit of restlessness in bed. And, and so it turns out that they had one book in English in that, in that um, house. <laughs> and the book was Freedom in Exile, um, which is biography of the Dalai Lama. Mm. And so I started reading that book. And it was so beautiful. I was just like, it was like meeting an Olympic athlete of sort, like when an Olympian um, shows you these gymnastics, basically, they give you a view of what can happen when a human trains their body in that way? This is what the human body is capable of. Well, in this case, you know, the Dalai Lama was like an Olympian of the heart. And he made me realize that mm. compassion was something that could actually be trained and that there were these Olympic levels of compassion that were possible, which I had assumed it was almost something like you were born with in a way, or you just had, I hadn't really thought of it as something that could be trained and worked on and developed. That was really my first understanding of that in that way. And I just became fascinated with that. And yeah, so, you know, as life would have it, a few months after that, a friend of mine who was um, in New York you know, called me and said, you know, it turns out that the Dalai Lama is going to come and I have two tickets 
I think it was related to her job in the United Nations or some, or maybe she had bought the tickets. I don't remember, but she had two tickets and she was asking me <laughs> um, if I could think of anyone who might be interested in the ticket. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, I will be there. Like I was in California and I was a student, but I like, there was no question in my mind that I was going to make it to New York mm. um, for this. And, you know, at the time when the Dalai Lama taught in this way, it could be days or even weeks at a time. And so basically after that, I started studying with him once or twice per year, you know, it could be like for a week or two weeks or three weeks. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and this went on for a long time for about 20 years. <laughs> wow. Of studying, of studying with him and, and over that time also finding that so much of this wisdom had come from deep connection to nature as well. And so I just came to understand, yeah, the deep potential benefit of engaging with nature and, and expanding our hearts and what that could mean for the future of the earth and the future, you know, of generations of all species. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story especially yeah about the bus that sounds like an extremely traumatic situation and experience to go through but it sounds like kind of through that experience that yeah I really gave you the gift of the Dalai Lama and yeah learning under him and integrating that into your work and did you did you end up working with him on a project did you mention that mm -hmm. last time can, do you want to share a little bit yeah. about that? I'd love to hear. Yeah. You know, the other gift that that bus accident gave me, you know, now that you said it that way, I just realized that it, like it gave me this deep embodied conviction that, that I should never be so set on my idea. I should have an idea of what I would like to do or what should happen, but then think of it as, May it be this or something better. I think that's what it taught me because I was so intent on traveling on the roof of that bus and so disappointed and frustrated when the bus driver did not let me. Mm. And actually that bus driver ended up saving my life and the life of my friend. Mm. And so... Yeah, so that's kind of become a very important part of my life. It's like learning to realize that the gifts come in all sorts of different packages, you know, including mm -hmm. disappointments. That's yeah. True. Yeah. So um, when, yeah, working with the Dalai Lama, so I had the opportunity of um, working with him on a project related to uh, teaching ethical leadership to young people. So this was through the Dalai Lama Fellows Program, which, um, you know, was created to basically put forth one of his top priorities, which was to teach ethical leadership. But one of the things that he wanted was that this be like a 
you know, non-denominational, non-Buddhist organization that was really focused on ethical leadership and, and not at all about religions. And so actually the young people should come from all different religious backgrounds. And, but at some point, the executive director thought that it would be a good idea to have somebody on the board that, that had experience studying with the Dalai Lama and, you know, who, who had experience seeing things from his perspective. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, so he invited me to chair the board, to co-chair it with uh, another person. And, and that um, then made it possible for me to be working in this way on, on this project. Mm. Beautiful. And then what, <laughs> what came from that? Did it come to fruition? And Yes. So every year uh, the program would take on a group of fellows from around the world and uh, teach them this very beautiful curriculum of ethical leadership and then support them on an ethical leadership program throughout a year and then support them in a community of, you know, like alumni that had gone through this program. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't have the statistics in terms of years or number of fellows, but it grew steadily. And just recently, it was incorporated by the University of Virginia, who has taken this program to now expand it and grow it at a much bigger level. Oh, that's so beautiful. (laughs) You've you've done so many amazing things, Natasha. It's really, really inspiring. Yeah, it's so amazing. (laughs) I think that, you know, like, yeah, somehow when I was little, I, I was just, yeah, I just figured out how to appreciate the little things, right? And, and Mm. just, just soak them in, like soak in that magic and, and try to kind of keep myself or like keep bringing myself back to this like warm hearted feeling, you know, just like of gratitude for like waking up and having another day. And I think that, you know, this has really opened me up to all sorts of amazing different opportunities and and possibilities that then have presented themselves to Mm. me. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, thank you for sharing. Yeah. Parts of your story. And I guess kind of leads you to, or leads me or us in this conversation. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I'd love to speak about your latest film. Mm -hmm. Um. Correct me if I'm saying it wrong, but Sawal Mem? Yes, one word, Sawal Mem. Okay. And so (laughs) I I kind of read on the, um, when I watched the trailer for it, which is beautiful, by the way. um, Thank you. Yeah, it it said, what is one word from your ancestral language which changed your life and which you can offer to humanity as a medicine to heal our relationship with the earth? Mm-hmm. So was that a question that was posed to a bunch of different filmmakers and then you all had to come back with this a film about this one word or is that your mm-hmm. was that your specific idea for your film? Mm-hmm. So what happens is that 
now I have a, a daughter and at the time she was 13 years old and I was really wanting to offer her a similar experience to what my parents had offered me in terms of opportunities to learn directly from indigenous wisdom keepers. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking for opportunities to do that. And as a filmmaker, I came up with this idea of, you know, like having some sort of a sense of how this wisdom lives so richly in every single word, right? I had this idea of like, okay, what if we would just make it bite size? What if we could just focus on one word? And so I, I thought of this question. And I just held it in my heart as this, you know, kind of personal project idea like that. Mm. And then one day I was, I was at a conference, a very beautiful, tiny little conference um, that gets put on here in the Bay Area and Point Reyes. And uh, it's called Geography of Hope. And one of the speakers was Michael Palm Preston, a young man from the Widom and Wintu tribe of Mount Shasta here in California. And at the end of the conference, we were on um, the ancestral lands, kind of on this coastal Miwok land. And there were no other, there were no uh, indigenous people from this particular region there. And so he just kind of took it upon himself to close us in prayer and in song. And yeah, there was something very beautiful that happened when he was singing and, and praying. And so I went up to him afterwards and I just wanted to share this idea with him. I, I said, you know, I, I just had this idea about making a film just based on this one question. And I, I, I asked him the question, I, I asked him the question, I said, idea is to ask the question and then he looked straight into my eyes and he said I know my word wow <laughs> you're like I found my man <laughs> oh, my, oh my gosh it was and and it just you know when he said that I just got this whole like feeling in my body like mm. wow this is happening <laughs> Like it went, it went directly from idea to almost like a commitment, you know, like me mm -hmm. having just expressed that idea, like, and so, and so basically we started on this journey of co-directing the film. It was very important for me, for him to be in a, in a director position so that basically my role was to offer, you know, my skills as a director, as a filmmaker, in service of him. Because what I was interested in offering my daughter was a direct opportunity through him. And so that's why it was very important for me that he have, you know, complete authorship and creative control of, of the film. And so that's how we start collaborating as directors on this film. And it has really been a, a beautiful journey. Yeah, so far, <laughs> for sure. Mm. And can people, can we, can we watch it yet? Like, is it out? Yes. Okay. Yes. It, it came out in March and the film has been selected 
and won awards at about, I think, more than 30 film festivals right now in 15 different countries. And wow. we have just, <laughs> I know, it's just so unbelievable. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. It's, it has been so exciting for us to just know that, that there are people out there that are interested in this. And it just makes us feel connected to such an amazing community. Yeah. And so we have just made the film available um, to watch. And so it can be found at the website is oneword.earth. So not .com, but .earth, www.oneword.earth. Yeah. So you can watch it there. (laughs) Okay. I'm definitely going to watch it after this for sure. It's only uh, 20 minutes long. We wanted to, you know, my idea with one word was that it would be five minutes and we would do a series of these around the world and like make it this micro documentary format. Mm -hmm, (laughs) But what mm -hmm. happens is that because of where we started this conversation, you know, because we don't have a coherent worldview anymore, this word sawamem, which translates into sacred water, is a word that oh, perfect, <laughs> right? So yeah. crazy. <laughs> wow. Okay. Cool. Um, you know, it's a word that is considered to be now untranslatable in our modern languages because we don't have that concept of sacred water. And so, as we were working on this film, we realized that really we needed at least twenty minutes to be able to set the context in which this concept of sacred water could exist. So that's why, you know, the film is 20 minutes long. (laughs) Wow. Oh, that's so funny. That's just such another little synchronicity between us. It's so beautiful. Sacred water. (laughs) I love that. Um, I have one last question for you before we kind of wrap up. Um, It's kind of, I guess, related into, yeah, filmmaking and storytelling. There's just, Oh, there's so many things that I want to talk to you about and unpack, but maybe we'll have to do another episode. But um, yeah, I'm curious, like, you know, you working with this Indigenous man, co-directing this film together, and I guess you kind of touched on it before, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about your perspective on it, on how being, I guess, like a non-Native filmmaker or storyteller, wanting to be an ally for Indigenous storytelling Mm-hmm. How such a sensitive and delicate line to walk and not just in filmmaking, but in any form of storytelling or communicating or sharing or speaking. Yeah. What's your kind of, what's your kind of take on that? And how does one navigate that in a respectful way? Because I, mm-hmm. I, I, I certainly feel that myself. Like I definitely want to be an ally and a voice for indigenous wisdom keepers, but I don't want to, you know, I want to create the space for them to speak or be, mm-hmm. you know, a medium for their message to come out into the world. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So early on when, when we were starting to work on this project and when the project was still an idea, I felt this clarity, right, because of what we've talked about, because of my experience as a child, because of the deep resonance that I felt with this way of engaging with the world, and because of my life experience, and and as a mother wanting to share that with my daughter, I just had kind of this clarity of 
this being aligned to what I wanted to do and how I wanted to be of service in the world. And as I started to share that idea, I got so many warnings from people <laughs> that, that this was not my place, that I would never be able to make everybody happy, that I would get a lot of resentment from Indigenous Native communities, that it would be more of a headache than the benefits. I mean, so many kind of, you know, alarming <laughs> warnings came my way. And these all came from experiences that these people had had, right? Mm. And I think that the way that I approached it was, you know, just basically thinking about building a friendship, right? And the way that you would engage in a friendship, mm. which is like, maybe softly, slowly, respectfully giving space, kind of testing the waters, giving and taking, entering mm. into some sort of reciprocity. Mm. Yeah, so that's the first thing. Building trust, yeah. Building trust, right? Which means that you need to give space and time for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, being clear about my, my thoughts, my intentions, my wishes, and like, you know, checking in to see, you know, what his dreams, intentions, ideas mm. were, and also being very conscious of the fact that in the Americas, you know, up until very recently, there has been a huge amount of violence committed against Indigenous people. Mm. And unspeakable cruelty and injustice and and there has been a complete lack of a process of truth and reconciliation and so because of that there are a lot of open wounds mm -hmm. that are still being lived today because mm -hmm. it was only like two generations ago when a lot of the active cruelty was being perpetuated and, and there's a lot of consequences of that in, in, in today's generations. So just be very conscious about that and, and just realizing that, you know, not to expect to be received with open arms and to also realize that there might be times where things didn't come out of my mouth in the way that I wanted them to and that I might mess up and that people might call me out on it as mm. it did happen. Mm -hmm. And realizing that as long as I was kind of aligned with my intention, then I would be able to kind of recover from that. And that has, you know, enabled me, I think, to work in a very respectful way with Palm and come together. I mean, in our case, it really helped that he was so clear from the beginning. I, you know, months later, I asked him how that was for him, how it was that he had responded with that clarity. And yeah, mm -hmm. he, he explained it in a way, it was almost kind of like this spiritual connection that he felt like it's almost like in a way he had been expecting, me. you know, so for him, it was like very clear. 
So that helped um, get us started, but there was still a relationship to be built. There mm -hmm. was still trust to be built. There was still kind of like, and, and there were things, you know, there were bumps along the road. And I think kind of keeping that communication open and clearing things up as they happen, like you would do with any other relationship, but just mm -hmm. having extra levels of sensitivity, you know, that's like, for me, it has been worth it a thousand times <laughs> to, to have done this and, and has, you know, uh, been able to offer my daughter and her generation gifts beyond what I had been able to imagine. And uh, yeah, I hope to have the opportunity of actually turning one word into a series where then I would have the opportunity to co-direct other films with other young indigenous people from around the world, asking them the same question. Oh, I love that. That's such <laughs> a great idea. And thank you for sharing your perspective. I really appreciate and honor and respect um, everything you shared. Um, I'll definitely, yeah, be taking some, some pointers away from that. So thank you. Oh, I just, yeah, feel like there's, yeah, so many beautiful avenues and spaces we could talk about and spaces we have <laughs> talked about and, you know, from traveling and filmmaking and storytelling and nature and sailing. And yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's been really inspiring and so lovely to talk to you. And I'm just so grateful for you coming on today. And I guess... Aww. Yeah, thank you. I, I, know, I know I said before I had one last question for you, but that was a lie. I do have, I do have one more question for you. Um, I'm curious, who are your teachers? And I know you, you, know, you mentioned the Dalai Lama, but on, as well as him, who, yeah, who inspires you? Like, do you have any kind of favorite books of, you know, your one favorite book or, you know, someone else that you really look up to or that you kind of enjoy following? I'd love to hear. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I feel like one of the most important books of our time is uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Robin Wall Kimmer, she was one of the very first people that I contacted when I had this idea of the film and, you know, the spirit of like what she communicates in her book was very much alive in, in the film and in my nature practice where you know, so like so many indigenous uh, teachers, you know, Poms, my co-directors, uh, mother is a chief Colleen Sisk. She's the spiritual leader of the Widom and Wintu people. And um, she has been an amazing teacher along this journey of making the film and beyond. And, uh, you know, other indigenous teachers that I've had the opportunity of um, learning from the Kogi uh, people from the Sierra Nevada of Colombia, the, you know, the people from the Pemon tribe in Venezuela and the Guarao tribe that I was able to spend time with as a child. And yeah, so there was like this whole indigenous uh, lineage that that I, I just think is, you know, indigenous wisdom keeping represents our, as human beings, our most intimate knowledge of what it means to thrive with the earth, mm -hmm. to live in, in our, like thrive ourselves in an earth that is thriving. 
And so they are kind of the master uh, teachers. And then, you know, a whole other part of my lineage has been, yeah, the Dalai Lama and also opportunities to study and to be in retreat with um, other teachers like uh, Chitnat Han has had a big influence in my life. Love Letter to, to the Earth, that would be a book um, that would be interesting to, to explore on this topic. And then, you know, and then naturalists like Jane Goodall um, and her book, uh, Reason for Hope. I always really like it when scientists or, you know, naturalists get spiritual. I really like that edge. Yeah, yeah. And then I mentioned Sylvia Earle, the oceanographer, and yeah, her documentary Mission Blue is definitely one that I would recommend. And, you know, The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Volenben. He was actually at that conference. I think it maybe may have been, yeah, it was the same year that I met Pom. He was there as well. And that's another, that's another book that I highly, highly recommend because in very, in very easy to understand ways, he basically explains the latest science about trees. You know, that he explains how, from a scientific standpoint, we have realized that trees are these intelligent beings that have very sophisticated communications and community behaviors. And yeah, it's very fascinating to me, because this is something that indigenous people have been telling us for thousands of years. And, and it's fascinating to see, you know, scientists be able to explain it in scientific ways. And when it comes to water, you know, bringing us back to water, indigenous people around the world tell us that water, the, you know, I don't even know how to explain it, but, but water is a being so much more sophisticated and intelligent than trees mm. and so it just opens up this whole world of like yeah possibility and excitement you know like Pum mm. says in the film mm -hmm. we're so slow science is so slow <laughs> <laughs> to catch up with these things but but when there are intersections it's actually you know quite interesting to to read so I would say that you know other than like my parents and my family which you know nurtured my connection to nature so strongly those those are the three main influences in my life like the Buddhist side and the naturalist side and then you know very prominently the indigenous side mm. beautiful Thank you for sharing all of those recommendations. I've definitely be, uh, been taking notes yeah. over here. <laughs> well, you know, and ultimately what I would really say is that, you know, like, yeah, ultimately nature is really the greatest teacher. Mm -hmm. Like, and when we can have the humility to put ourselves back into the position of being a student of nature, not studying nature, but learning from nature, letting nature really become the teacher, then, then that, that is really kind of the ultimate possibility in terms of learning experience, because not only are you learning so much about the natural world, but then you are also learning about your own inner nature in relationship as well.
Mm. Well, thank you. (laughs) Oh, so good. I know. I feel like we could be, we could continue talking. I think there's, there might be something there to some sort of a ocean related retreat or something like that. (laughs) I feel that. I feel that too. I feel like a little seed has been planted and I'm like, "Hmm," you know, little, little project or, or something. I feel like there's definitely something there that we can go into, but you know, yes. let's, let's, let's just plant the seed and see what happens. I'm sure. I'm sure it will come. I'm sure. Yeah. And I love, I really love the energy that you're putting out into the world, like with your storytelling and with your filmmaking and with this podcast and how you're weaving in these themes of, of intuition and like, you know, dismantling like this conditioning and coming into closer relationship with nature. I mean, I just think mm-hmm. that these are all so important and you bring them forth in such a beautiful and graceful and heartfelt way um, that is just a joy to absorb. So thank you so much for that. Oh, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I really, yeah, I really, really appreciate it. And I feel very very seen and witnessed, which is very, very nice. (laughs) So just to end, Natasha, how can people find you and your work? And um, obviously you mentioned with the film, they can can go to um, oneword.earth. That's right. To connect with, you know, your nature practice program. Um, Mm -hmm. Where can they find that? And I'd also love to share for, um, yeah, if if you wouldn't mind sharing for my Patreon community, what you're offering there as well. Oh, yes. So for the, um, for where people can learn more about nature practice, so it's naturepracticealso.earth. So naturepractice, all one word, dot earth. And if you go there, I've actually created a free mini training on three practices that you can uh, use to find deeper soul nourishment in everyday nature. So that's kind of a little introduction to nature practice and that's available at naturepractice.earth. Yes. And for the Patreon community, I'm very happy to be offering two spots for my six-week program called Nature Practice Foundations, which is an online program to develop this nature-centered calm and clarity and conscious responsiveness while healing our relationship with the earth. And by joining this program, you'll also be joining an international community of nature lovers that come together once a week to, to have very beautiful, rich conversations about themes related to what we're practicing and what we're exploring. And the description of the program can also be found on uh, through naturepractice.earth. Beautiful. Yeah. And thank you so much for this incredibly generous offer that you are um, <laughs> Yeah, offering to my community on Patreon. I'm so grateful and I'm sure my community on Patreon are super grateful as well. Natasha and I haven't decided on a date yet for when we're going to draw two people at random for this, but I will, um, 
I'm sure we'll decide on that by the time I post this podcast out. So I'm sure I'll mention it in the outro probably in a couple of minutes, you'll hear it. So um, (laughs) there we go. Is there anything else you'd like to say or share or, or communicate before we, before we close things off? Yeah, I guess, I guess what I would like to share is, you know, to invite the listeners of, of this podcast today to just kind of feel into any goodness that they have experienced as a result of listening and engaging in this conversation and just really feel that goodness and kind of send it out into the world, maybe send it out through the breeze or through the branches of the trees, the roots, through the water rays, the rivers, the currents of the ocean, in whatever way is available for you to send out so that it can benefit all of our relatives in the world, all of our relatives of all species for generations to come. So beautiful. I'll definitely be doing that. I feel full of love and inspiration and goodness. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Natasha, for coming on today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned so much and I'm really excited about this new connection. So, thank thank you you so much, Yosha. It was really my pleasure. that's it beautiful people I did just want to quickly mention you probably noticed Natasha mention um, just now for my Patreon community she did say six weeks but um, since we recorded that we changed it into a six month membership so it is correct what I said in the intro Um, we are doing a giveaway for two spots um, for her a six month membership into her nature practice flow program So again, you can find my Patreon page and all of the details for that in the show notes below and all of the resources and links that we've spoken about um, down below in the show notes as well. So thank you so much for listening all the way through um, and for being here and for your presence and your attentiveness. Um, Both Natasha and I, I'm sure I can speak on behalf of her for that, that we really appreciate it. and yeah i just look forward to doing this giveaway um that's again going to be drawn on the 8th of february so you've got a couple of weeks from the date of this release um just to give everybody some time who may listen to it a week or two later um and yes i will see you guys very soon i'm sure sending you all so much love in the meantime and take care